So we took a break and we actually went into the the, uh, the chapel there on on Beth Row, and uh, I, I felt that that uh, peace in there. I, I prayed and I felt that I had played a role, and it was my role to play in the sense of uh, I felt that that peace. That was retired prosecutor Bernie Daly Rianda describing his feelings as he waited for the prosecution of Mark Ace the first of 31 murder defendants he successfully obtained death sentences for during his career. The story behind that murder case is coming up on Sun Crime State. I'm Tony Holt, crime reporter for the Daytona Beach News Journal. Welcome to Sun Crime State, a weekly podcast that takes an in-depth look at Florida's biggest crime stories of the past and present. In this episode, I'll discuss last week's guilty verdict of a St. Augustine man who barged into his ex-wife's home three years ago and fatally shot her and her friend. Two others escaped the house. You'll hear portions from five harrowing 911 calls, the same calls that jurors heard. Later, I'll discuss the 1987 slayings of two Jacksonville men who were shot by Mark James Ace. The killer became the first death row inmate executed after Florida's death penalty was reinstated last year following a short hiatus. The lead prosecutor said Asay's killings were racially motivated. The attorney who fought to keep him from being executed says that wasn't true. You'll hear from both men, as well as from Florida Times Union investigative reporter Eileen Kelly. Coming up, the arrest of a violent felon who kidnapped his girlfriend last week and then shot three men outside a Daytona Beach motel. Okay, perfect. And you said three people were shot? Three people were shot. They lay on the ground. Okay, and who, where's the person that shot them? He's gone. He left Okay, where did he go? I don't know. He's in a car. Okay. And it was a male? Uh, yes. Okay, what type of vehicle did he leave in? I don't know. I was inside. Okay. Hurry up. These guys are dying. Okay, yeah, I have that call up right now. All right, and so those three men, do you know where they're shot? Um... I think there's a dead guy here. Um. That was Dwayne Urban, owner and operator of the Sun Plaza Motel on US-1 in Daytona Beach. He was awake watching television around 2.15 a.m. Thursday when a major commotion took place outside his door. He remained inside and watched everything unfold on a security monitor. Once the gunman left, he called 911. Police said Marcus Pinckney pulled into the motel parking lot with murder on his mind. He opened fire on three men, 57-year-old Tracy Height, 22-year-old Trevon Height, and 56-year-old Robert Singleton. Tracy and Trevon Height were father and son. The elder Height died at the scene. Trevon Height and Singleton were rushed to the hospital, and doctors were able to save them. A police report stated that Trevon Height was shot in the neck and shoulder. Urban told me Singleton was shot once in the buttocks and once more in his foot. 
Tracy Height, according to reports, was shot in the face at close range. Here is Daytona Beach Police Chief Craig Capri talking more about the 40-year-old suspect during a media conference Thursday in front of police headquarters. He uh, has confessed to the crime, and when we confronted him, we told him the other two were in the hospital, he said, they're not dead. So, in my mind, that means he wanted them dead. Before the shootings, Pinckney, according to detectives, kidnapped his girlfriend. She had agreed to meet him that morning on Tennessee Street, located about four miles west of the motel. After he showed up, Pinckney tied her up using a phone cord and a belt and kept her in the car as he drove to the Sun Plaza Motel, this according to police. Capri said that's where Pinckney opened fire on the victims. The woman he is alleged to have abducted was later dropped off on North Clyde Morris Boulevard. A bystander saw her and police were called. Authorities said her wrists were still tied when they found her. Capri said she was able to describe the murder because she watched it take place. Here again is Capri discussing the kidnapping and the subsequent abduction of the suspect. He had, earlier this evening, to go back, he had kidnapped his, uh, his girlfriend and uh, was holding her against her will. And we knew he had a history of violence and was unstable. So with all this coming into play, we knew that he was probably going to be very violent towards our response. Uh, so we were thinking tactically, how do we approach the hotel? How do we do this safely so no one gets injured? And during that time, he must have been alerted by somebody we don't know. Because him and the, his ex-girlfriend, who's with now, comes busting out of the door running to get to the car, and they ran right into us. Police had surrounded him at the A1A Super Inn in neighboring Ormond Beach. Capri said police had the element of surprise on their side. He also told me that Pinckney was armed. Had the suspect known police were there, he may have opened fire. Pinckney goes by the nicknames Jojo and Rico. He has been charged with one count of first-degree murder, two counts of attempted first-degree murder, and one count of possession of a firearm by a convicted felon. More charges are possible. Pinckney has been in trouble with the law for at least 15 years. He was charged in 2004 with attempted murder, but pleaded guilty to a lesser charge of aggravated battery and served almost a decade in prison. In that case, he fired three rounds from a 12-gauge shotgun at another man, striking him in the head and neck. The victim told police the shooting was done in retaliation after he had confronted Pinckney over some vulgar statements he had made to the victim's girlfriend. After his release from prison in 2015, Pinckney was arrested on an armed robbery charge. A rape allegation also was leveled against him, but he was not prosecuted in either of those cases. Dwayne Urban, the motel owner who called 911, provided the news journal with access to the muted security video that captured the shooting. A white Mazda suspected of being driven by Pinckney peeled into the motel parking lot around 2.15 a.m. The video shows Trevin Height walking to the car. Then he puts his hands up and walked backward. He kept his hands up for a few seconds before wandering over toward the driver's side near where his father was standing. The video also captured Singleton standing nearby. He was closest to the motel. Seconds later, 
Someone gets out of the car, and then muzzle flashes are captured on the video. The man opens fire on both Tracy and Trevin Height. Then the gunman walks towards Singleton, who is in a defensive stance. The suspect fires a round at Singleton, who drops to the ground. The gunman walks closer to him and fires another round. As the suspect walks back to the car, he fires one more round into Trevin Height, who was already lying on the asphalt, bleeding. Capri described the shootings as execution style. Capri also said Pinckney and the three victims were operating a drug business together, and Pinckney accused them of ripping him off. Urban told me that Tracy Height and his son had lived in the motel for two and a half years, but Tracy was getting ready to be evicted. He had stopped paying his rent. He filed a document at the courthouse challenging the eviction, but Urban told me he was only prolonging his rent-free stay. Urban pointed out to me that had Tracy Height simply left when he was supposed to, he may still be alive today. Thursday's homicide was the city's sixth of the year. Coming up, I'll discuss the verdict in a domestic-related shooting rampage that rocked St. Augustine three years ago. My guest for that segment will be St. Augustine record reporter Jared Kiever. It's terrifying in, in that it was a, a married couple and, and just how brazen it was, you know, the, it being in daylight and just kind of coming in right through the back door and, and opening fire on, on, a, on a house full of people. You know, with those 911 calls, you really got a sense of just how absolutely terrifying it had to have been inside that house. That was Jared Kiever of the St. Augustine Record describing to me the horror level felt by those who came under fire inside a Mirabella home the morning of August 25, 2015. Last week, 38-year-old James Terry Colley Jr., an Ormond Beach native, was convicted of first-degree murder. Colley's trial is scheduled to resume today in St. John's County. Jurors will hear more testimony and will decide whether to recommend death for the defendant. The two victims were Kali's estranged wife, Amanda, and her friend, Lindy Dobbins. They were killed inside Amanda's home on Bellagio Drive. It was a house she once shared with her husband and their two children. Two other people in the house, Amanda's boyfriend, Lamar Dubberly, and her other friend, Rachel Hendricks, managed to escape the house. Hendricks testified that she was burned on the arm by a passing bullet that very nearly struck her. Dubberly got away with no injuries. The two of them ran to separate homes in the neighborhood seeking help. In all, there were five 911 calls made. Two of those calls came from neighbors, those phones were eventually turned over to both Dubberly and Hendricks. Both of the fatal victims also called 911, but neither had a chance to speak to the call takers. They were being murdered by James Colley. The recordings you are about to hear are disturbing. The first 911 recording I'm about to play for you is from Amanda. You can hear her tell her estranged husband, who was alleged to have wanted to kill Dubberly, that Dubberly was not there. Then 
you hear Amanda tell her husband in a panicked voice to put down his gun. Then the shots ring out. After a pause, you hear another scream and then more shots. Down over there. No. Not in there. Put it down. In another call, you hear Lindy Dobbins screeching into the phone. There are more gunshots, and then you hear from a pair of astonished 911 operators. 911. Ma'am, ma'am, what what's your address? Ma'am. Hello. Hello? Hello? Did you hear what she said, Esso? No, I didn't. She was screaming bloody murder. Is that gunfire? Uh, oh, my God. Esso. Go ahead. She just said on the other line, somebody said, put it down. It was the same area. Okay. Rachel Hendricks was inside a closet hiding with Lindy. Just a few feet away from her, on the other side of the door, she heard Kali shoot Amanda. At one point, Kali pushed past Hendricks and made a beeline toward Lindy, who was curled up in a ball hiding beside a dresser. That's when Hendricks made her move. While on the stand, Hendricks told jurors that she slipped around the door and bolted out of the house. While she was getting away, she heard Lindy scream, and then heard another gunshot. She ran to a neighbor's house down the street. She was led inside, and she hid inside a closet there while the neighbor called 911. What's the address? Yes, ma'am. Uh, I, I've got a lady that just came over to my house uh, re- reporting a shooting. Okay. Where did the shooting occur at, sir? Ma'am, what is the address? A lady said a bunch of people have been shot. She is saying that there is somebody shot? Yes, ma'am. This, how about the suspects? Do we know if there's any... We're trying, sir, but we need to know more information for the officers responding. Who did the shooting, and are they still there? Do you know who did the shooting? Are they still there? James Holly. James Colley. And James. he's still there? Yes, he's still there, and he has a gun. Hendricks was the last of Amanda's friends to show up at her house that morning. She and Dubberly and Lindy Dobbins had come over to support Amanda after she had realized her house had been burglarized the night before. Authorities believe the house was ransacked by Kali. Here is Kiever giving me more details about the burglary. Night before the shootings happened, he had he had broken into into the house seeking confirmation that, that she was having an affair and he got that confirmation he um he he'd found it seems he found some searches on her computer that were that were indicative of an, of an affair and also found some sex toys 
at the house. That, the, the prosecution contended, um, enraged him. The following morning, Amanda was in court for an injunction hearing. She had filed one against her estranged husband. He had a court hearing that morning, the morning of August 27, 2015. He, he left that court hearing. I believe he got probation for, for a previous violation of the injunction. The prosecution claimed that, he, that there was a phone call that, that, they, that they had in cell phone records between he and Amanda Colley um, shortly after he left the courthouse. That phone call lasted about 14 minutes. They don't know what happened on that phone call. But from, from there, he, um, he returned to his sister's house where he was staying and, at least according to the prosecution, collected a bunch of guns, returned to um, his home, the home that his wife was staying in that he was barred from, seeking, they believed, a man named Lamar Doverly, her, um, his wife's boyfriend. He approached the back of the house, fired in through a, through a sliding glass window. That was when the shooting started. Dubberly ran through the kitchen and through the garage. The women in the house ran toward the master bedroom, and that's where Kali did his damage. After Hendricks made her escape and was safe and secure inside the neighbor's house, she felt calm enough to take the phone and talk to the 911 operator. She explained to the operator that law enforcement had just left Amanda's house earlier that morning, not long before the shootings. They were there to take a report on the burglary from the previous night. Hello? Hey, I need you I need Hi. a little bit more help. We got officers coming, but can you please hurry? Can you give me some information so that I know what's going on? They just left her house. The cops just left her house. It's Amanda Colley. They just left her house because her husband ransacked the house last night. She just she, they just came over and did a report with her. Okay, hang on, just hang on, just a moment. Okay, he was in the house shooting, and I ran. I just ran. She said he was in the house shooting. She ran out with the neighbor's house. She said the the law enforcement was just there because the husband uh, ransacked the house during the night. They just left. She said you need to send paramedics. I think he shot everybody. Please look. I, we've got people coming. I know. I know. It's just. It's I am so scared. I know. It's just taking driving time to get there. I'm so scared. Hendricks collected herself again and continued with the conversation, describing what she saw and heard. She said that he started firing the gun and she ran. And you seen him firing the gun? Yes, I got. I got grazed by a bullet. She said she got grazed by a bullet when he started firing and she ran to the neighbors. But he blank he he point blank shot my friend that was right in front of me. I mean I'm I'm scared to death for my life. Is that Amanda? He shot Amanda. He shot Amanda and he shot Lindy Dobbins, our other friend that was there with us. I'm hiding in a closet at the neighbor's house. I'm scared to death. Hendricks took the stand a week ago Thursday. Her testimony was emotional throughout. She wept while on the stand as her 911 call was played. Also testifying during the trial was Lamar Dubberly. He said that he ran down the street after the first shots were fired and kept running until he saw a landscaping crew. One of the workers called 911. 911, do you have an emergency? Uh, yes, ma'am, I do. Some dude just come running down the street. I'm, uh, met. He said there's been gunfire, shots fired, something. How many shots are they here? I, I don't know. We're just working out here. He 
Okay, the person the person that's running down the street screaming, is that him in the background? Yes, yes, ma'am. Can you ask him what's going on? What's going on? What happened? So, you put, husband, can you put him on the phone? The yes, ma'am. Hi. Hi, what's going on, sir? Shots fired. Okay, did the, did the shots fire? They hit They hit somebody? No, shots were fired from the outside into the house and sliding glass through the window. Okay. Do you know who it was? Yeah, I got a great idea who it was. Okay, are they still there? I don't know. I don't know. I left. I had to run. And so she, there's she's a after me. screaming something on the other line. Yeah, yes. another call on it. Yes. They hit the sliding glass window. I, I think the shots were aimed at me. Okay, Sam, I'm not fine with you, sir. Calm down for me. What's your name? My name's Lamar, L-A-M-A-R. What's your last name, or your last name, Lamar? Dubberly. Did you see anybody fire the gun at you? No, no. No, they were outside. I, hear, I know there were gunshots. I'm former military. I'm retired Navy. Okay. Anybody know? Hurry. Send somebody right now. Sir, do you have any idea who it was? Yes. Do you know the I think, it was, I think it was James Colley. I mentioned there were five 911 calls made that morning. The fifth came from an unlikely caller, the defendant's sister. 911, where's your emergency? Yes, I need to report a possible murder. Where? 260 South Bellagio. Okay, we have, we have all the deputies out there. Do you see them out there? No, I'm on leaving work. I just I just found out that my brother may have killed his wife. Who said, who said that? Uh, my mother called me and said that someone told her that, that my brother killed his wife. Who said that to you, though? That was your mother? Is it true or ma'am? No, ma'am. There's an there's an ongoing investigation. We have everybody over there right now. We are okay. Still... So that man, please tell me how they been. Did he shoot him? Ma'am, I I'm not sure, ma'am. Okay, we have them all out there. There's deputies out there doing their job. There's it's an ongoing investigation. Okay. Okay. All right. Thank you. No problem. According to trial stories published by the St. Augustine Record, an empty 9mm Ruger was found on the bathroom floor near the victims. The magazine was empty. Detectives said Kali used that gun and a 45 caliber handgun to shoot his wife. Kiever said Kali was mostly stoic during the trial, but there were moments when he tried not to listen to some of the testimony. He sat at the table through through the whole through the whole trial, and it was just kind of calm and collected. The, you know, I did note the day the medical examiner testified. He spent he spent that entire testimony, which was which was almost an hour and a half, well over an hour. He spent the the entire testimony with his head down because they had you know autopsy photos up on the up on the television screens in the courtroom. He kept his head down the entire time, and at times even. Um, kept his kept his hand over his ears so as to not to not to listen to it I, I glanced at him a few times also during closing arguments and he also kept his hand over his ears for for portions of that as well the defense alleged at the start of the trial that Kali was taking a mixture of drugs which included ambien and hydrocodone and that the medications contributed to a severely altered state of mind the defense did not present evidence to back up this claim. During closing arguments, defense attorney Terry Shoemaker asked jurors to find her client guilty of second-degree murder. She argued that the crime was not premeditated. 
Jurors took two hours to come back with a guilty verdict for first-degree murder. The state attorney for the Fifth Judicial Circuit, R.J. Larizza, the state attorney for the Seventh Judicial Circuit, told a Jacksonville television station that the Mirabella murders were as callous and violent as any he had ever seen in his professional career. His office is seeking the death penalty against Kali. The penalty phase of the trial was scheduled to begin this morning. Jurors are expected to return this week with a sentence recommendation, and I'll provide you with an update here on Monday. Coming up, I'll discuss a double slang that occurred 31 years ago in downtown Jacksonville. Mark Asay, a suspected white supremacist, was convicted and executed for those murders. My special guest for that segment will be retired prosecutor Bernie DeLirianda, criminal defense attorney Marty McLean, and Florida Times Union investigative reporter Eileen Kelly. I actually uh, went to um, death row and watched the execution of Mark Ace. It's the first execution that I've wa- uh, watched, and all of the cases that I've handled were I've sought and obtained a death penalty. I have told victims' families that I will be there uh, with them, uh, or even if they're not there, I, I feel uh, an obligation to represent the victim or victims. Uh, and so, and I've always felt also that somebody who seeks a death penalty should, uh, if it should go there and be present here to see it. That was Bernie Dilly Rianda, who served three and a half decades as a prosecutor with the state attorney's office in the Fourth Judicial Circuit. During his decorated career, he tried 97 homicide cases. Of those 97, according to the Florida Times Union, 44 were death penalty cases. That means 45% of his homicide cases involved him trying to convince a panel of jurors to recommend death for someone. He swayed 31 of those 44 juries. Perhaps the most famous case he prosecuted was one he lost. He was co-counsel with Angela Corey in the 2013 trial for George Zimmerman who was charged in the death of Trayvon Martin. Zimmerman was acquitted. Bernie told the media that it was only the second murder trial in which he didn't attain a guilty verdict. The first man Bernie won a death penalty sentence for was Mark James Asay. Asay also became the first man Bernie ever watched get executed. On July 18, 1987, a time when Whitney Houston was atop the album chart and Revenge of the Nerds 2 was the number one movie in America. Mark Asay was out drinking with his brother, Robbie, and his friend, Bubba McQuinn. Asay had a lot to drink the night before and into the morning. At one point, he and the others decided they wanted a prostitute. They knew exactly where to go. Here is Times Union reporter Eileen Kelly talking about what Ace did that morning. He was a young man. They were they were looking for trouble. Basically, he was out with his brother and his friend, and they were drinking and you know boozing it up and looking for sex. And his brother um, 
it turned out, was actually friends with a black man by the name of Robert Lee Booker. He was friendly with them. And Robert Booker, you know, came over to talk to them. And apparently it irritated the hell out of Mark. Um, Mark, who had swastika tattoos, white power written on his arms, SWP, supreme white power, um, you know, on his arms as well, used a racial slur and shot um, Mr. Booker in the gut. And uh, then Mr. Booker goes racing off. He's trying to seek shelter, and he died beside a house in this neighborhood outside of downtown Jacksonville. And then the three guys went on their way. Here is Bernie giving more details on what took place in Jacksonville that morning, recalling what he can from a trial he prosecuted as far back as 1988. They drove around the uh, part of Jacksonville, uh, it was referred to the Springfield area, looking for a prostitute. Robbie actually came into contact with our first victim uh, and uh, was talking to him. And when Mark Acey and uh, Bubba pulled up in their truck, Robbie was actually talking to um, the first uh, person, inquiring about whether you know where a prostitute could be or whether they, where they could find some women to have sex. Uh, Mark Acey got mad, uh, went up to the the um, truck where Robbie was, where his brother Robbie was, and uh, started pointing the finger at our first victim, Booker, made some comments about uh, some racial epithets, you know, including the N-word and other stuff, and basically pulled out his gun and shot Booker. Booker was so severely injured, he didn't go far. But Robbie Acey decided he would split. Booker uh, was shot in the side and took off running. And ironically, you know, we found his body. He ran maybe a block or two. And we found him, the, the, you know, later that day, uh, he had crawled under a house. And so then what happened is Robbie, uh, Mark Acey's brother, took off and uh, went home and uh, told his wife, he washed off the car because there may have been some blood or something to indicate, you know, where uh, Booker was shot. And so he washed his car and told his wife, if anybody asks, I've been home the whole time. Bubba McQuinn and Mark Acey decided to stick around. Bubba was spooked at what he had just seen. He made sure to keep his friend calm. He continued driving the downtown area looking for a prostitute. Mark Acey got in the, the bed of the of his pickup truck. Bubba was driving it, and they drove off. Bubba started asking him, uh, you know, why he did that, you know, wh- why he shot this guy. Booker, our first victim, hadn't done anything. I mean, there was no disagreement, no argument. He was just trying to uh, or talking to uh, Robbie. Mark Acey made comments to Bubba about, well, you've got to show... You know, again, using racial epithet, you got to show them who's boss. Uh, kept making some other comments like that. Uh, and then uh, I think they even Bubba asked him something like, are you, sh- you know, why did you shoot him or something? And he goes, oh, I just scared him, you know, not a big deal type thing. Even though Robert Lee Booker had just been shot and was bleeding out under a house somewhere in the vicinity, Asay and McQuinn kept looking. The latter found a streetwalker he had recognized. Unfortunately for that prostitute, Acey was still amped up and still armed with a gun. It wasn't that far. I think maybe within a radius of maybe 8, 10, 12 blocks, they came, stumbled upon uh, victim number two, 
uh, who was uh, Robert McDowell. Uh, victim number two had, uh, was, was dressed as a woman. Actually, Bubba uh, recognized her as Renee. And apparently, Bubba had had sex with uh, victim number two before. And so they pulled over. Uh, there was some discussion about the sex. Uh, victim number two, McDowell, used to get in the trunk with them. Something about, uh, you know, he didn't want to do two. And he was going to only have sex with one of them at a time. They, they went around the corner. Uh, uh, Mark actually got mad at, uh, grabbed uh, McDowell, and just started shooting him. I mean, he pulled the, 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 his gun out, and I think he shot him five, six times. He shot him numerous times, and then even on the ground, I think he shot him again. According to trial evidence, McDowell was shot six times. The state said three of those shots could have been the fatal shot. Asay reportedly told McQuinn after the McDowell shooting that the cross-dressing prostitute had actually cheated him out of $10 during a previous encounter. He swore to himself that he would get even. Asay, based on how everything came to light quickly during the investigation, wasn't all that tight-lipped. They then later that, either that day or the next day, drove some friend or cousins or somebody's house. There was two uh, brothers or two cousins that overheard Mark Ace and made comments about, you know, what he did in terms of the shooting, etc. I think there was some comments by Ace about either for sex or he recognized them or something like that, or he had ripped them off on a drug deal, meaning McDowell, victim number two, but he definitely shot him and finished him off. One of the statements Ace gave to a friend was that he intended to abduct, rape, and kill McDowell, but McDowell refused to get into the truck. As it turned out, Ace decided simply to kill him in the middle of the street. After Ace was arrested and put in jail, he continued to talk to fellow inmates. All those incriminating statements were used against him at his trial in the fall of 1988. Jurors voted 9-3 to three to recommend death. Back then, Florida jurors only had to have a majority vote to recommend a death sentence. The U.S. Supreme Court changed that rule, and Asay's attorney tried to have it retroactively apply to Asay's sentence. But those efforts fell short. At the time of his conviction, Asay was 24 years old. He had already served prison time in Texas, so he was a hardened criminal already. Even still, it appeared he was going to die a very young man. He was still relatively young when he died. He was 53, but he'd wait almost 30 years after his conviction before being executed. Ace, after exhausting all of his appeals, was administered a lethal injection on August 24, 2017. 11 months ago. Ace had white supremacist tattoos. In the end, it was believed that Ace killed Booker because the victim was black. The state also argued that McDowell, who was Caucasian, pretending to be a Latin woman, also was killed because Ace believed he was a light-skinned black woman. A year before Ace was executed, the case was picked up by South Florida attorney Marty McLean who is an expert in capital murder cases. He had little time to prepare. Ace's execution countdown was already ticking. 
Not only that, but McLean didn't have everything he needed. He told me that the files had been kept for years by a federal defense attorney who badly overlooked the importance of proper record keeping. She wasn't just disorganized, McLean told me. She was negligent. Uh, I was also hamstrung by the fact that uh, the files I got delivered to me were useless. She delivered them, she had somebody deliver them in a rainstorm. They were already moldy and insectful and pretty much illegible because they've been outdoors. And so I had not been on the case before. I didn't know the case. I had to start from scratch. After he was able to dig in, McLean was incensed over the insistence that the second victim, Robert McDowell, was black. The Florida Supreme Court, shortly before Asay's execution, actually ruled that part of the state's argument was wrong. And then finally, uh, 10 days before the execution, the Florida Supreme Court, in an opinion, says, oops, I'm sorry, we had the race of one of the victims wrong. Ignoring that that was the argument for the motive as to why these murders happened and why they were aggravated and why there should be a death sentence. There is another component to this. Asay never denied killing McDowell. He claimed it wasn't premeditated, but he did admit to fatally shooting him. He said he did so during a mental breakdown. But as far as the shooting of Booker, Asay had always maintained his innocence, at least to the court, to the media, and to his attorneys. Here again is Eileen Kelly. Throughout the appeals process, Mark has never admitted to killing uh, Mr. Booker, the black man. But he did admit to killing uh, Robert McDowell, the white person. And, and that's important because, you know, racist motivation can help prove that a murder is cruel, calculated, premeditated, and worthy of execution. McLean told me the state's case against Asay wasn't as airtight as it wanted people to believe. He told me that originally the two shooting deaths were being investigated separately. A ballistics expert with the state intervened at the time and surmised that the bullets used in the deaths of both men came from the same gun. Once that connection was made, a person of interest, someone other than Asay, who was being investigated in connection to Booker's murder, no longer held the interest of investigators. All of their focus centered on Asay, and the investigation took on new life and a new shape after that. That's what McLean told me. He also pointed out that the gun used to kill McDowell and or Booker was never found. The bullets were all that the investigators had. McLean also insisted that the ballistics evidence the state relied on back then for a conviction wouldn't be reliable enough today. It wouldn't even be allowed to go before the jury. Asay himself made the same claims during his last TV interview before his execution, which he gave to a Jacksonville news station. McLean is known to advocate hard for his clients, and here he is explaining why Asay sported so many white supremacy-themed tattoos. Um, Mark Asay had been in prison in Texas. Uh, he was uh, quite young, and while in prison in Texas, he was uh, victimized by um, black inmates, and 
um, some uh, sort of white nationalist guys offered to give him uh, tattoos in order to try to help protect him or you know, offer him sort of a, a protection of affiliation with them. I really can't imagine what life in prison was like in Texas back in the mid-80s when he was there. But that is when he got the tattoos, which Bernie then focuses on during the trial to contend he's a white supremacist and linking the two murders by the only way to link them is, is to lie about the race of McDowell. McLean argues that the narrative the state stuck to during Asay's trial, that he committed premeditated double murder because he harbored violent and racist thoughts in his head, was ultimately false. At trial, Bernie Aranda argues and tells the jury that Mark Asay was just going around looking for black men to kill that night. And that's not what happened. And he's, it's so pervasive in the trial that the Florsman court says that is what happened in the direct appeal opinion when they affirmed the death sentences in 1991. Bernie de la Rionda told me that the evidence backs up that Ace was a cold-blooded and racist killer. The defendant's own statements back that up. His brother's statements back that up. Bubba McQuinn's statements back that up, as do the statements made by ASA's friends and fellow inmates. That's what Bernie told me. Bernie also told me that race wasn't a factor, and in the grand scheme of things, ASA's racism wasn't a factor either. All that mattered to him was that the victim's families got justice. Some people have said, or, or there was a comment that even maybe by the court or somebody, uh, that uh, he would have been, Mark Asa would have been the first person to kill somebody who was black, I guess, or who got the death penalty and actually was executed. And that's what uh, I recall being said. You know, I don't know. I don't know what the statistics are or not. I don't worry about that. I worry about uh, making sure that uh, victims' lives uh, matter and especially the um, family members of the uh, innocent victims. Uh, both of these individuals in this Mark Asay's case were innocent victims. A week or so before Asay's execution, Eileen Kelly landed an interview with Booker's brother and son. The three of them had a deep conversation. Well, I sat down with um, Mr. Booker's son and his um, and his brother, and and we we chatted about racism in America, um, particularly the brother who who is a couple years older. He's I think seventy years old now. You know, he talked about what it was like um, in North Florida and Georgia, growing up as a black man trying to find work. You know, his son was his son was a little shocked. Um, that see Vittorio, he's I think about forty five, and he was telling me that he couldn't believe in the eighties that this had happened. He had heard all the stories of of the of the Deep South, um, you know, from Reconstruction through the sixties. But he just he couldn't believe that his father was killed. That people still thought like that. He was fifteen when his dad was killed, and um, and then so here we are, thirty years later, and I'm sitting in in his yard with him, having a conversation with him as uncle and we're talking about charlottesville and it was um it's kind of an emotional day for everyone kelly said she was surprised to learn during her research that florida was executing for the first time a white defendant who was convicted of committing a racially motivated murder against a black man 
Booker's son, on the other hand, had no reaction to that part of the case. That, too, seemed to surprise Kelly. You know, he wasn't that interested in talking about... When we talked about race, we were talking about Charlottesville, and we talked about his father's killing, but... But when I brought up the notion of, you know, did you, were you aware that the, your father's killer will be the first white man to die at the hands of the state before killing a black person? He, his, his, he and his brother's response was, well, an eye for an eye. It, it, that race had, should have nothing to do with it. It was more just a somber feeling. They, they didn't look at that as anything remarkable. I did. I, I, I found that remarkable. Of all the people that the state has executed, that this was the very first time. Um, because, you know, as you know, pe- lawyers have argued for decades that, that you know, the death penalty is applied unfairly and that it's mostly, it's, you know, mostly given out to black defendants. And it was just, I, I was just surprised. I mean, nothing should surprise me in Florida. I've done quite a few tours as a journalist here, but um, I, I was kind of taken back and went and checked the facts again and again, you know, the figures. I'm like, wow, I had no idea. I remember his son really didn't want to talk about race with that. Um, you know, he just wanted, he wanted justice to be served. And in his mind, executing a person, you know, that, that would be justice. Thank you for listening. If you want to hear more in-depth journalism from Eileen Kelly of the Times Union, I would urge you to check out her five-part serial podcast, Have you seen Kamaya? It's available on iTunes, Google Play, and other podcast apps. The first two episodes are already available. Episode three will be available Tuesday. Kelly's podcast takes you deep into the July 10th, 1998 abduction of Kamaya Mobley, who was abducted mere hours after she was born. Daughter and mother wouldn't be reunited for another 20 years after investigators finally got a break. The Kamaya Mobley kidnapping case was profiled on this podcast in episode 42. The segment features an interview with Kelly. I encourage you to check out Kelly's podcast. The title again is Have You Seen Kamaya? It's terrific. Tune in next Monday for the next episode of Sun Crime State, when I will profile the 1983 abduction of two teenage girls in Vero Beach. The kidnapping was committed by confessed serial killer David Allen Gore, who wound up killing one of the girls after she tried to escape. A witness saw him run down the street naked, chase down the girl, and shoot her in the head. The second victim was tied up inside Gore's parents' house when the shooting took place. Authorities showed up, arrested Gore, and saved the other girl. Please join me next week for that episode. You can find Tony on Twitter at Tony Crime Writer or email him at tony.holt at news-jrnl.com. Be sure to rate us on iTunes. Sun Crime State is recorded by Tony Holt and produced by Chris Bridges for the Daytona Beach News Journal.